Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill-Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 80. We're really getting up there. We are. You know, it's funny because every time I say the number, it's like I feel like I'm saying it in disbelief. Like, welcome to episode 80. Can you believe we're at 80? I know. I like a good (laughs) round number. I do. I like – I was like, this is a good good number for our holiday episode. Yeah. Yeah. So happy holidays, everybody. Is this supposed to be a holiday episode? (laughs) I mean, I didn't do anything holiday themed. Okay. We're just just like saying happy holidays. Yeah. Just know that when this is coming out – the end of the week will be Christmas, I think. And yeah. I think Hanukkah's already passed. And uh, so if you guys celebrate, happy whatever happy to you. any holidays. Happy any holidays. Yes. Um, also, we are doing something over on our Instagram that we wanted to talk about. So this past week, and it will still be going on when this episode comes out, we have been doing the 12 Days of Giving. So we are posting about a charity that are near and dear to our listeners' hearts. Many of them were suggested by you guys, which we really appreciate. We are directing people to their donation links and asking people to give if they are inclined. Yeah, we just wanted to highlight some organizations that are doing good works. And so far, we've done a couple. We've done uh, Be the Village, which we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. We did Refugee Coffee Company, which is a little coffee shop in Clarkston, Georgia, which employs refugees and trains, pays them a living wage, does job training for the refugee community in Atlanta and around Atlanta. And so that's an awesome place. It's a nonprofit. Um, we've done what Feeding America. Yeah. and And probably a lot more. Be when you guys hear this. So if you uh, if you have some extra money, you're wondering where to direct it. Go check that out on our Instagram. You can find all the organizations and all the links. And uh, and we just thought it's a good time. A lot of a lot of organizations are in need right now, and a lot of people are in need. Um, and so we just thought, hey, we we know people. We do. Let's tell the people about things that people need. Yeah, and then those people can give those people the things that the people need. Exactly. Right. That's what we do. Um, we also right. tell well, stories into- about murder. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, you know, to offset that. Yeah. <laughs> We're feeling real guilty, you guys. We feel a lot of guilt for some of the things we talk about on this podcast. So this is our way of balancing out the universe. <laughs> it's like we've always said, Jen, it's the yin and the yang, man. Yin and the yang. Got to keep it balanced. <laughs> got to keep it balanced. When I got my dragon tattoo, uh-huh. when I was 19, the woman that I got it with, well, she was also 19, so she got a yin, a yin yang symbol on her foot. And she was like, it's all about balance. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then my other friend who was with us got a Chinese symbol for happiness. Like, man, we really, you were, we really like went the for the trio it. of cultural appropriation yeah yeah. (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah it's like that like popcorn tin with the three flavors (laughs) it was 1999 (laughs) awesome all right so my quickie this week is actually one that i find completely relatable because probably lost my wedding rings 
10 times while we've had this podcast and I've lost yeah. it. I lost it the day after Zach gave it to me. I lost it. <laughs> uh, it was in a, it, we found it in a rolled up rug in Target. So, but I, which is where you would think that's the first place I would look. Yeah, that was the 12th <laughs> place we looked. First, we ran through Home Depot like maniacs. And then we ran every, we had just bought a house. So we had been everywhere that day. Like, you name like, it. Have you seen a tiny diamond ring? Yeah. <laughs> have you seen among all of these silver and gold tiny pieces I had Home Depot? to retrace all of my steps. And then at one point, I was like, I did look at the rugs. Probably all of them. I think I rolled out every rug and then rolled it back up and put it back on the shelf. <laughs> Target loved me. And so then I ran over to the rugs and started pulling all the rugs off the shelf. And then all of a sudden I hear it dink and it just dropped to the floor. And Zach was like, you are so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine like he had like, you know, saved all this money to buy saved a ring and I lost saved. it the very next day. So anyways, um, but my rings just keep on coming back to me, um, usually yeah. because my ghost grandma finds them for me. Um, thank you, ghost thank grandma. Thank you, ghost grandma. This story is, uh, this just happened. It's an article written by Amelia Ward. Last week, mother of two, Rachel Edmonds, was swimming in the Morecambe Bay because she's training for a charity swim across the English Channel um, for, a, it's a race next year. Wow. When she realized that she still had her wedding and engagement rings on her finger. And then so she started, while she was in the water, she fumbled to take them off and she was trying to put them into her dry bag. I guess that's a thing that swimmers wear yeah and when she was doing that she dropped she was able to she dropped both of the rings she was able to catch her engagement ring but her wedding band fell to the bottom of the sea floor wow okay yeah so of course she freaked out yeah her and her friends and her husband all weekend long in the cold and rain so they put their wetsuits on and they all um jumped in the water and tried all weekend long to find this ring but to no avail like I, wouldn't you just i'd be like well i guess it's gone <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> i would too that's, that's never to be seen from again okay yeah yeah well um, that right when they thought that they were never going to find the ring again, one of Rachel's friends reached out to another friend who is a um, he's a nurse, a charge nurse at the Royal Lancaster Infirmary, and he is a very good metal detectorist. It's a hobby he's had for many years. He got in touch with Rachel, and he came um, and met her at the beach, armed with his metal detector, and within five minutes. He found the ring. Oh, really? Yeah. They, wow. Like she, he, he said that he only had like just a roundabout, like I think maybe over here, and he thought that it would take a while to find it. But within five minutes, he said high tide was an hour away, so the pressure was on. She had a rough idea where she dropped it, but it's not an exact science. And he said, "I found it in five minutes. I couldn't believe it." He detected it, and then he saw the edge of the ring sticking out of some mud. Yeah. And he said it was just such a great feeling to return a lost piece of jewelry. He said, I calmly said to Rachel, I found it. She was about 10 meters away from me, so wasn't aware I had it in my hand. She couldn't believe it. It was an emotional time. 
He said, I'm well pleased because they're English. I'm well pleased. It was a great feeling to find her wedding ring. So Rachel, who's uh, Rachel, who's been married to her husband for 19 years, and the ring was designed by her and her best friend, who is a jeweler. And it's platinum with 22 diamonds. So it's like, that's a fancy ring. And then the fact that she designed it with her best friend 19 years ago, that's really. Yes. That now I'm like, okay, like my $20 ring on Amazon (laughs) is not, you know, it is sentimental, but also not precious. So I, well, I mean, all rings are precious, right? right? Just like babies. (laughs) Um, But, but, um, but this like, you know, obviously was very near and dear to her. So she was thrilled to find it. And the ring brought her and, and this helpful friend, Matt together. And um, she said that since the ring brought them together, Rachel has met Matt's wife and son, and she took him It says, took him round a massive hall of beer and wine to say thank you for finding her treasured wedding ring, which is so now, and now they have friendship. That's great. So they found rings and and friendship. friendship. I love it. And a massive hall of beer and wine. (laughs) Which Which all sounds amazing. (laughs) All of us are looking for, isn't it? Yeah. So that's my quickie for this week. And I'm just like, I... Like it just keeps, you know, sometimes rings are just made to be in your life for forever, I think. Well, I kind of feel like <laughs> I maybe I'll talk to Zach about a, a birth or a Christmas present for you. It sounds like you could use a metal detector. <laughs> I actually could, and that's a fantastic idea. Because, but also tell him I want some other like really nice things. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. like a vacation alone, a, <laughs> like vacation, a vacation by myself. Just uh, what I've been telling you. Yeah, and a Madewell <laughs> gift card. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, and uh, <laughs> uh and, and a spa va- a spa weekend. Oh, I need my wa- knife sharpened, not for uh for cooking reasons, not for murdering reasons. What else? All right. Um. So that's it. What you got, girl? Right. I love it. Um. Okay. I have a quickie. I feel like it's going to be like in other times we would be like. This guy's great. I love people doing crazy things for love. But in these times, I feel like we're not going to be on this guy's side. So, okay. okay. I got my information from an article in the New York Times. Okay. Like many couples during Corona, 28-year-old Scotsman Dale McLaughlin has been separated from his girlfriend. He met her, actually just met her in September. He was doing a job at a root as a roofer, and his girlfriend lives on the Isle of Man, which is an island in between England and Ireland. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a self-governing island. And during the lockdown, it has been closed to all non-residents except those with special permission. So Dale had been there for his job. So he had spe- special permission in September, which is when he met this woman. But he has not been able to go back because the island, which is a population of about 85,000 people, has had only four active coronavirus cases. Oh, wow. And has not had a locally transmitted case for more than six months. <gasps> so since meeting Heaven. his girlfriend- I know, right? I'm like, can we all go? Dale has applied two times to go to travel to the Isle of Man to see his girlfriend, but both of his requests have been denied. So he got desperate earlier this month, and he decided to take matters into his own hands. Mm. He bought a jet ski and set off for the Isle of Man on his own. 
He left at 8 a.m. for what he thought was going to be a 40-minute trip from the southwestern coast of Scotland to his girlfriend's home, and he later told authorities that he had never ridden a jet ski before (laughs) (laughs) and that the bad weather on the Irish Sea caused a trip which should have been 40 minutes to stretch to four and a half hours. Oh, my God. I hope he brought snacks. Right. (laughs) I hope he has a dry pack. Right, they need he needs a dry bag. In the like, actually, in the article, they interview a guy who's like a local boat owner, and he was like, "Yeah, I don't know how it could take that long. You can see the island from the peninsula where he left. Like, it's a straight shot. You can see it. Is the kind of guy you just don't want on that island, Corona or not? (laughs) Exactly. Just keep that shit somewhere else." So he had left at 8 a.m. and he finally got to his girlfriend Friday night because he got to the northern coast and then he had to walk 15 miles to her home in in the capital, Douglas. They actually spent the weekend enjoying the city's nightlife, but their reunion was cut short because he was arrested and later charged with one count of violating the Isle of Man's coronavirus restrictions. Wow. Yeah. He was sentenced to four weeks in jail, and a statement from the government said, On the Isle of Man, we're all for ingenuity. But unfortunately, this was an incredibly reckless, dangerous endeavor, which could have ended very differently given the time of year. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, like that's crazy on so many levels, but it's if there was somebody that I wanted to see so badly, like for the sake of all the people on the island, what is the 85,000 people? Yeah. Like God forbid this guy like even if you he's telling you he doesn't, you trust him, you know he doesn't have coronavirus, just out of respect for the 85,000 other people on your island. Right. Keep that shit Away. Just wait it out. (laughs) Just wait it out. Skype each other. Yes, Skype each other. Or you leave. Or you leave. You get off the island. You get off the island. I vote her off the island. island. (laughs) The tribe has spoken. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's my quickie. Oi, oi, oi. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for... A wild story. I am ready. Oh, it's this one is all over the place. Okay. Um, Okay. So this one comes from uh, an episode of Cold Hearted uh, uh, from the ID channel. Uh It's a news show. And then there's an article for CBSnews.com and then an article for Daily Mail by Keith Griffiths. Okay. Corey Allen Voss grew up in rural Illinois and was he was kind of a mischievous kid, they said. Um, he hung out with bad kids. He would get into trouble. But he was also very smart. You know, he was, you know, kind of like me. Just like real smart, uh-huh. but also not the best kid. Um, <laughs> but he ended up dropping out of high school, but he got his GED and he was working a few different jobs and was just kind of floundering, not sure what to do with his life. But then his mother suggested that he join the Navy, you know, just to give him some direction. And right. that's so he did. And he absolutely loved it. He found his calling. The Navy completely changed his life around. In the fall of 1997, when he was 20 years old, he was stationed in Newport News, Virginia, 
And he went out out to a bar with some friends and he ended up meeting 23-year-old Katerina Rose. She was fun and bubbly and she had this like sexy Russian accent. Katerina. She I can't do a Russian accent. Okay. So <laughs> just imagine one. And so it was one of those yin and yang type things. He was a quiet guy and um she but she was really outgoing. So it was an opposite to track type situation. They immediately started seeing each other and within just a few months they found out that they were having a baby. All right. So they decided to get married. His family in Illinois were not thrilled. They were like who is this girl? They hadn't even seen him. He just they just get a phone call one day that he's getting married and having a baby. So when they came to town to meet her. They were reluctant. But then Kat talks to him. She tells him about how she grew up in the Soviet Union and her American-born mother abandoned her. So she was raised by her strict Ukrainian father. And they just felt really bad for her, you know. And they're like, all right, we're not like crazy about this, but we're going to accept her and support right. our son and brother and and Kat and the new baby. So in October of 1998, Kat gave birth to a little girl. And just six months later, they ended up getting married at the Justice of the Peace. Um, And then a year later, Corey and Kat had their second child, a baby boy. Everything in their marriage seemed to be going great, except according to Cold Hearted, Mm -hmm. uh, Kat be shopping. Oh, Kathy Shappen. You know, they love – I mean, I'm not saying she wasn't, but I feel like on the all of these ID channel documentaries and stuff, it's always like, and then the woman was spending on jewelry and furs right. and makeup <laughs> and periods and she liked, periods. She liked a good – the good life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She liked things like food and – House over her head and <laughs> shoes to walk in, <laughs> clothes for her children. Yeah. So they said that she had a huge spending problem mm-hmm. and that she bought things that they couldn't afford. Mm-hmm. And she, and they said that she would try to project an image that they had way more money than they actually had. Yeah. But then they also and then there's a little like blurb that they they sneak in there. They go and he was also bad with money. Uh huh. So yeah. So they were both bad with money, all right? Right. Just saying. So Corey ends up borrowing money from his family to cover their bills. But, you know, he wants to further his career so that he could have a bigger income to afford all of these things that they want. Mm -hmm. So he applies to officer um, candidate school, which apparently is very hard to get into. But he got in. And in 2006, he completed the program and was commissioned as a naval ensign. Okay. Good for him. Yeah. And so he was moving up in the naval ranks, which uh-huh. meant more money, higher status, and people looked up to Corey and Kat in their community. You know, she was very proud to be a naval officer's wife. Yeah. And so they ended up buying a house with a pool. She bought a BMW, jewelry. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, <laughs> they were living out of their means, just on a bigger level right. this time, you know, because they were both bad with money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Both of them. And so with Corey's new rank, he was now having to be deployed six months out of the year, which is very stressful for a marriage, you know, especially when you have two two small children. You know, Kat had no help at home. He was gone. So now they're in about nine years into their relationship. 
And it's no secret. Everyone knows that their relationship is rocky. Yeah. You know, when he's gone, she's venting to her friends. Because, you know, six months is a long time. It's a long time. I know my dad was, you know, when when he was in the Air Force, he would often have to travel. And it was hard for my mom to be – there by herself with us like so much you know just I think it's just it's very hard on a marriage it is so thank you to our military for the sacrifices that you make yeah (laughs) sorry thank you (laughs) give it up for the troops (laughs) give it up for the troops (laughs) uh so when no, I mean I have friends who, no. you know, who they're uh, my friend John McCray. He's in the military, and his wife Kayla. God bless her. They have three small t- children, and I know that it's very, very hard on her. No, I um, was more just yeah. joking. I'm like, uh, sorry, I know I said that, and it sounded like I was making fun of military, but I wasn't. I was making fun of no. comedians who do that during their sets. They'll be like, yeah. give it up for, give it up for the troops, just to get like a big. <laughs> A big applause break and be like, yeah, look at me. I'm so cool. Like, yeah, you just don't have jokes, man. Yeah. It's just those easy, like, you know, who here likes ice cream? You like ice cream? Who's drinking tonight? I'm going to drink it. Wow. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Who here has has hands? Let's clap it up. Clap those hands. Let me see them. So when he's gone, she vents to her friends a lot. She tells all of her friends that, you know, she's worried that he might be cheating on her with the woman on the ship. And she says that when he gets back in town, she's going to file for divorce. Okay. And Corey wasn't happy either. He was frustrated that while she was away, she'd be shopping (laughs) and spending their money like crazy. And he couldn't Mm -hmm. really do anything about it from the ship. And apparently she would go out drinking and partying and she would pick up the tab for everybody. She would tip $100 bills, which is actually very nice. That's very nice. That's fine. Uh, But, you know, living beyond her means. Right. That's not nice. So she started acting like she was single. You know, she had already told all of her friends that she was going to leave him when he got back. Like um, she was gone and the relationship was over in her mind. Yes. Yeah. So he just didn't know yet. <laughs> right. And so one day she meets a stranger on a MySpace by the name of Michael Draven. And Michael Draven is this gothic looking guy. Like he kind of looks like the devil a little. He's got the skinny butt goatee and the dark hair. And, uh-huh. and the guy that plays him in the cold hearted show, the actor, it looks like they took a preppy guy and then they took like a gothic black butt cut wig yeah. and put it on him. Like, then, dude, do you remember like when Garth Brooks was Chris Gaines for yes. a minute? Oh, yes, I do. That's exactly what this actor <laughs> looks like. But not what Michael Draven – Michael Draven literally looks like the devil. Uh-huh. But um, but the actor that plays him, this is what you you can – imagine the uh, Garth Brooks as Chris Gaines. Yeah. yeah. So – He said that he was a wealthy and successful photographer and film producer. They met up and Michael drove her to this fancy neighborhood and he pointed to this huge mansion and he was like, that's where I live. And she was like, awesome. And then they had an affair. And so shortly after, though, Michael apparently confesses to Kat that he's not so much a wealthy filmmaker and photographer Uh as he is a newspaper delivery boy who lives in a trailer with his mother. Right. I was going to say, when somebody drives you by their house and doesn't – but doesn't actually stop at the house. Yeah. That's a red flag, ladies. 
Don't go with me. Don't here. Black. And so he also has a side gig, though, of being a medical test subject great. for money. Great, great, yeah. great. So, but she doesn't stop seeing him. She just thinks that that's like, oh, he just lied to impress me, but she still likes him. So Uh she stays with him. But when Corey comes home from deployment, everyone just assumed that him and Kat were going to get a divorce because that's what she had told everybody. But then to their surprise, Corey and Kat end up rekindling their romance and they resolve to make their marriage work. So things seem to be working out. And then one night that following April, Kat asked Corey if he wouldn't mind running out to the ATM really quick and getting $60 for the kids' school lunches. And he said, yeah. So she gave him her debit card and gave him the pen and he left to go get the money. And the ATM was just three miles away, so it shouldn't have taken long at all. But when two hours go by and Corey hasn't returned, Kat calls the police and reports him missing. She also calls several hospitals looking for him, but doesn't have any luck. Mm -hmm. And then later that next morning, police receive a 911 call from someone who was on their way to work um, in an office park that was right across the street from the credit union where Corey was supposed to have gone. Someone saw a truck with a man slouched over and not moving. Mm. And when police arrive on the scene, they found Corey Voss sitting in his truck dead from five gunshot wounds. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know the signs. I know. And you know it's coming, but it's still sad. It is. It's always sad. So upon first glance, they thought that it was robbery gone wrong, but a few things that made them think otherwise was, number one, he had five gunshot wounds, which is not typical of a robbery. Most people, if they're robbing someone, they want to get in and get out. They shoot once, they take the money, and they run. And also, if someone robbed him at the ATM, like why did they make him go to another location? Why didn't they just rob him at the ATM and run? Right. Right. And so the police then go and break the news to Katerina. When they told her that Corey has been found dead, she's absolutely devastated. She falls to the floor, wailing and screaming. They they said that she was so upset that they offered to call her an ambulance to get her care because her reaction was that strong. Yeah. And so she doesn't go to the hospital, but after a while, she calms down and the police start to ask her some questions. And she told them that she had asked him to go take money out of the ATM for her, that she call- she said, I called him several times and I told him to be careful. And they were like, why would you call him? It's three minutes away. So right, right. when the police look at the ATM footage, they saw Corey at the ATM And then they see a masked man get into the passenger door and hold up what appeared to be a gun before they drove off. But the rearview mirror was blocking the view just Uh so that you couldn't see the man's face or the gun. But here's what's really crazy is that when they looked up the bank records, no money was taken out of the account. So he hadn't hadn't even gone? No, he hadn't. he, He went to the ATM. He pulled up to the ATM. But he hadn't even taken the money out of the account yet before this oh, person okay. jumped in and made him made him run off. Also, right, so it's not obviously not money. The obviously. reason he couldn't get money out was he kept trying, but there was only five dollars in that bank account, and there was only five dollars in that bank account ever. Okay, so the bank account that she had given him, yeah, like was something that she created, but it was like a new account that never had more than five dollars in it. 
Okay. This so, seems like a detail like a detail they should have thought about. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's lots of dumb mistakes coming. So yeah. he was never robbed. When the news ran a story about the murder, Kat's friend Ashley Doyle saw it and she knew right away that Kat had something to do with it. Yeah. And she called the police and told them they needed to look into a man named Michael Draven and told them that him and Kat had been having an affair. And so when the police look up Michael Draven on social media, they see on his profile that he has all of these pictures of him, not only with Kat, but also with her and Corey's daughter. Oh, looking like family pictures, looking like they're a family. And he refers to them on his social media as his wife and daughter. What? Isn't that crazy? And so then. So creepy. So then the police then ask Ashley, Kat's friend, if she would be willing to wear a wire and go into Kat's home and talk to her to see what kind of information they could get out of her. Uh And she reluctantly agreed. You know, she was scared, but she did it. So when Ashley went over to Kat's house, she had a wire in her purse. And Kat, instead of being sad and wondering who killed her husband, you know, she was more focus on her finances. Three days after Corey's death, the Navy provided her with a benefit of $500,000, but they only gave her half of it up front because there was a hold on receiving the other half until the investigation of the murder was completed. And so when Kat was talking to Ashley, she was just consumed with this is bullshit. That's my, like, I should be able to get that money. I need that money. I'm whatever. And so Ashley I need that money. My boyfriend's a paper boy. So (laughs) what am I going to do? I know. And so Ashley starts to get nervous and she makes up an excuse to get out of there and she leaves. And so here's the thing too. Ashley told the police that she knew about Kat and Michael's affair. And when Kat had told her that she was going to leave Corey, Ashley said that she had made a comment like, well, how are you guys going to afford anything? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, are you sure you want to leave your husband for this guy? Like, he doesn't have any money and you don't have any money without him. Right. So it kind of – and then she thinks that that And you be shopping. And you be shopping. So she was like worried that that might have sparked the idea in Kat's head of, oh, fuck, I can't just divorce him. I need to kill him. You know, so three weeks later, Kat and Michael decide to go on a vacation together to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Three weeks after her husband was just three weeks after. Mm -hmm. Oh, you ding dongs! I know. And unbeknownst to them, the police were surveilling everything. Mm -hmm. And so while she's there, she be spending, Mm -hmm. and they spent almost ten thousand dollars on the Outer Banks vacation. They brought Michael, and they brought his brother and girlfriend and their Uh kids. So they apparently splurged on jewelry again. Hi, it's jewelry. Get your bag. Jewelry. What do you need? Hotels. I think Michael needs some like gothic necklaces. But um <laughs> they splurged right. on jewelry, hotels, restaurants, and then apparently when when they got back, she spent money on a, an apartment for him so that he could move out of his mother's trailer. And apparently within three <laughs> months, I know, yeah. within just three months, she had spent all but nine hundred dollars of her money. Yeah. Isn't I mean that crazy. Like now that now that it, you say that, I feel like she be shopping. She she be shopping. Yeah. And so when the police looked more into that bank account that Corey had tried to get out of 
get the money out for her, the account that only had $5 in it. Yeah. When they pulled up footage from when the account was opened, they saw Michael went with her to open up the account. And not only that, he co-signed for that account for her. Definitely investigating the shit out of Kat and Michael. And when they do, they find out that Kat isn't exactly who she said that she was. Uh-huh. She was not Katerina from the Ukraine. She was uh-huh. Kathleen Wiggins from Newport News. She had been faking no. an accent and everything. <laughs> she was faking an accent for nine yeah. years? Mm-hmm. And uh, but when they they said that, but then when I they played some audio tapes of some other things that I'll talk about in a second, she didn't have it. Didn't sound like she had an accent, so maybe she just like kind of gave up on it. I don't know. But we were like, wow, she really is. Her English is so so good. good. Yeah. (laughs) But not only was had she been lying about who she was, but she had apparently been married before Corey Uh to a man named Steve Larson, who was a high school classmate from Newport News, and they had a young daughter together. (gasps) No. And she had – Kat met Corey while Steve, who was in the military, was deployed overseas. So no. so when he came home, she told him that she was pregnant with another man's baby, and then they got divorced. So she wow. left him for Corey, and Corey didn't know anything about this man or their daughter. Oh, like, she had a, another so child. heartbreaking. I know. Also, Michael Draven was not Michael Draven. What? He had his name legally <laughs> changed from Anthony Neff. To Michael Anthony Eric Draven because uh-huh. of his favorite fictional character, Eric Draven from The Crow. Oh, come on. I know. <laughs> what I two know. better people to find each other except for the murder? But what two oh, better people? <laughs> my God. I know. So also, Michael had just served some jail time a month before the murder for a previous domestic abuse warrant. And because of that, the police were able to look up all of the phone calls that – because he made a lot of – apparently hundreds of phone calls – while he was in jail to Kat, and all of them were recorded. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So police are able to listen to their tapes, and they talk about getting married. They talk about her leaving him. But they also brought up this one conversation where Michael said, you said that you and David was talking? And then she said, "Uh uh-huh. And then he said, you told him what's going on? And she said, yes, I did. And he said, okay. And then Kat said, he said, oh, my fucking God, I'm – just letting you know, I will take care of it from here on. And then Michael said, okay, just don't get yourself in trouble. And he, okay. And she said, I won't trust me. There was another recording where they talked about it again. And then she said that she needed it done. She needed him out of his life. And then he said, I just hate him so much. When the police. Wait, who's who's David? Okay. So when the oh, police okay. <laughs> then look in, now they need to know who is David. So right. the police look up her phone records and they're able to track down a man named David Runyon who lived in Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, hey, I used to live in Morgantown, West Virginia. You did. Did you know David Runyon? No. Oh. Well, <laughs> they, so David and uh, Michael met in Baltimore when they were both doing the paid medical drug trials, you know, being okay. cute guinea pigs. So right. that's where they met. So then the police put David Runyon under a 24-hour surveillance 
surveillance and they got a search warrant to search his home and his car and everything. So they pulled him over in what seemed to be like a routine traffic stop, but that's when they end up arresting him and searching his car. And inside the center console, they found a roadmap with a route marked directly to the scene <laughs> of Corey's murder with written uh-huh. notes describing the his pickup truck, the uh-huh. name of the credit union branch, Corey's uh-huh. name. And yeah. on, they also found a photograph of Kat and Michael with their names and addresses and their social security numbers <laughs> written on the back. Um, the uh, special agent, Sandra Barrow, said, I thought, how dumb could this guy be to still have in his possession something of such significance that it unequivocally links him to Corey Voss, Kat, and Michael Draven still riding around with it in his vehicle after seven months? And she said, I think he just forgot about it. (laughs) He was just like, ah, just another day of murdering. Yeah. And so then when they searched his house, they found a box of 357 Magnum bullets with five missing. Uh um, And then papers mentioning the credit union and the travel time to Virginia. They also found proof that he had purchased that gun the day of the murder. So with that, they arrested David Bunyan. And then they brought Michael Draven in for questioning, and he ended up confessing. But he said that it was all Kat's plan and that um, she had told him that Corey was abusing their children, and that's why she needed his help in killing him. So they Mm -hmm. asked him to cooperate in getting her down to the station. So they had him call Kat and say that, I'm here. I'm in the parking lot. I'm going to go inside. I'm going to confess. And she was like, no, don't you do that. Don't you dare do that. I'm coming down there right now. Do not confess. I'm coming to get you. So she came down to the station. And when she did, they put her in handcuffs and arrested her. On December 14th, 2007 is when she was arrested and charged. And she denied everything, of course. And seven months later, they went to trial. But in order for her to avoid the death penalty, she ended up pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit murder for hire. And she is going to serve four life sentences plus 20 additional years. Michael Draven, also Anthony Neff, uh-huh. um, and David Runyon went to trial. And Michael Draven received two life sentences and David Runyon received the death penalty. Corey and Kat's children are now living with Kat's family. Um in the United States, not in Russia, because she was from Russia. Right. <laughs> and that is the tragic story of Corey Voss. I wow. Can you, ima- can you imagine? Like her first husband and kid must be like, oh, he goodness. says he's so he's on the he is on the show on um, Cold Hearted. And um, he said he was like, uh-huh. I guess I'm the husband that survived. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. Man, what a I just I you know, the whole thing is so awful, but the pretending to be someone you're not putting on an accent for nine years is just so diabolical. There is this comedian mm-hmm. who when I met him, he was saying that he was Scottish <laughs> and he was going around in this Scottish accent. And the like when I met him, he I was he was headlining and I was middling, and he was just the mo the biggest piece of shit, just Ugh. like real misogynistic. And like I never talk bad about other comedians 
two comedians I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, but this was like one guy I would say his name and be like, watch out for him. He's like not a good guy. Like his big stock line was like, woman, bring me a sandwich. That was like Ugh. funny, his right? But in a Scottish accent. But I had lived in Scotland. I studied abroad in Scotland. So I was like asking him about Scotland. And he like, couldn't answer oh, you. He couldn't <gasps> answer anything. And so I was just like – he was like totally like bro- blowing me off. And I was like, that's so weird. So then I find out that he is not Scottish at all. So like he turn- he like comes up a couple different times, like different people meet him. You know, everybody has a bad experience with this guy. And then it turns out he had- was like, yeah, not Scottish. We found some video of him from like years earlier with like his American accent. And then he disappeared for a while. He showed up again in New York and people were like sending out like watch out for this guy. Um, He's bad news. And then I just got another comedian friend of both of ours, who I'll tell you who it is later, but uh, sent me a story saying that this guy had been arrested. Oh my um, God. Yeah. For like, he was, he's like living in Oklahoma and he'd been like embezzling money from his job (gasps) and doing all this stuff. And I was just like, oh, it's like redemption. Oh yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, no, no mention of him being Scottish. That's so weird. Wow. I love stories like that. You know, know. what's funny is, you know, uh, I, you know, manage apartments and it's several times I have been like showing a dude an apartment and then he'll tell me like, I'm I'm here because I'm a stand-up comedian or I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, And and then I'll go, oh yeah, me too. So, and I'm like, where do you perform? What do you do? Because Uh they don't expect that I am a stand-up comedian also because comedians have day jobs. Okay. Most of us do. (laughs) And, um, but it's just funny, like several times then I find them like fumbling over their words and like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm just now starting out. Uh, like I have a lot of good ideas. My friends tell me I'm real funny. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, like I have some, I have uh, some jokes. I, I mean, I haven't like, yeah, but, but, <laughs> but I've written like, I have like, a, I have like an hour of material yeah. though. <laughs> <laughs> um, just in case this person oh, okay. is listening, there's a guy that li- literally this just happened with uh, his name's Jack. Jack, I know you are a comedian. I was not talking about you. Uh, you're legit. Everyone else is a liar. Everyone else is a liar. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready to hear a love story? Yes. All right. So I got my information for the New York Times by Jonathan Candle and another article by Sarah Lyle from The Independent by Andy McSmith from The Irish Times by Arminta Wallace and The Guardian by Tim Adams. On November 20th, 2020, writer Jan Morris died at age 94 in Wales. Mm. And so today, my love story is a love story of this enduring love, but it's also a celebration of the life of Jan Morris, who was one of the best journalists, travel writers, and historians in Britain. Okay. Okay. So. When Jan Morris married her wife, Elizabeth Tuckness, in a civil ceremony in 2011, the two had already shared a lifetime together. In fact, they had been first married nearly 60 years earlier in 1949 and had only divorced, I know, in 1972 because they were forced to by law. Jan Morris was born on October 2nd in 1929 in Somerset, England. She was assigned male at birth, but she wrote in her book Conundrum that she was 
probably three or perhaps four years old when she realized that she had been born into the wrong body. She said, I really should be a girl. Mm -hmm. But in 1944, she was still a teenager and she enlisted in the military and served in Italy and then in Palestine during World War II as an intelligence officer, which is means a spy. And mm-hmm. it's kind of – it's funny, like, in all of these articles about her, they call her a teenage spy, which I just that think is, like – awesome. Right? It sounds like a great TV show, Jan the Teenage Spy. So after the war, Jan enrolled in, at Oxford, and that is where she and Elizabeth met. And Jan says that when they first met, they were just so delighted to be with one another that when Elizabeth would take the bus to work – Jan would ride with her, even though she wasn't going the same way, just so that they could keep talking. Aww. Yeah, isn't that sweet? They married, they ended up getting married in 1949. And from the beginning of their marriage, Jan confided her feelings about her gender identity to Elizabeth. Jan wrote, I told her that through each year, my every instinct seemed to become more feminine and my entombment within the male physique more terrible to me. Still, the mechanism of my body was complete and functional, and for what it's worth, it was hers. Together, the two had five children, although one died at just two months old. Mm -hmm. And they described their relationship as an open marriage in which the partners were explicitly free to lead their own separate lives, choose their own friends if they wish, have their own lovers perhaps, restrained only by an agreement of superior affection and common concern. So in 1951, Jan graduated from Oxford University with a degree in English literature, and that same year she was hired by the Times of London and became a cub reporter, and she was sent all over the world to cover different stories. As a correspondent with the Times and then later with The Guardian, she wrote about wars, famines, earthquakes, and she she reported on the trial in Israel of Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi war criminal. Mm -hmm. Uh, She also covered the trial in Moscow of Francis Gary Powers, who was the United States spy plane pilot who was shot down over the Soviet Union. She traveled to Havana to interview Che Guevara. I mean, she just had this amazing career. Yeah. But it was in 1953 that she got this big break. She was chosen as the only reporter to join the first expedition to the top of Mount Everest, led by Colonel John Hunt, Sir Edmund Hillary, who was a New Zealand explorer, and Tenzing Norgay, who was a guide from Nepal. And her these lengthy, detailed reports that she would send from the expedition at the time were read by millions. It was a huge event at the time. And Jan wrote, I think for sheer exuberance, the best day of my life was my last day on Everest. The mountain had been climbed. I had already begun my race down the glacier toward Kathmandu. Right when, at the very end, when it when they were just about to reach the top, in order to report that that the top had been reached and to beat out all the other any other reporters that might find out about it, she scrambled down an ice field and sent a wire overnight to the Times with a pre coded message, just in case anybody intercepted it. So the message read: "Snow conditions bad. Advanced base abandoned yesterday. Awaiting improvement." And the Times knew that this meant the summit of Everett had been reached on May 29th. And it actually happened on the same day or the night before Queen Elizabeth's coronation. And Jan wrote, I felt as though I had been crowned myself because in Britain, this was the conquest of Everest was like a national event. And Jan had made a lot of friendships on the mountain, and they all stayed in touch for the rest of their lives. She actually was the last survivor from that camp. Um, 
the success of her reporting on Mount Everest enabled her to kind of take a step away from journalism and start writing books, of which she would eventually publish more than 40, which is just a crazy amount of books. Um, Included studies of cities, travel essays, and several volumes of biography and historical novels. Jan and Elizabeth lived most of their life in Wales, near where Jan's father had grown up, and that is where they raised their family. In the 1960s, Jan met with Dr. Harry Benjamin, who was an early researcher on transgender people, and he advised Jan to start the process of hormone therapy. And so from 1964 to 1972, Jan took doses of hormones, which was a decision that Elizabeth and their children supported. And during this time, she wrote furiously. She Her book, Venice, which was published in 1960, won Britain's prestigious Hyman Award for Literature. And the book, Success, established Jan as a major writer, and it has never been out of print. In 1968, her trilogy about 19th century Britain, which is called Pax Britannica, was called a tour de force. And she eventually decided to do her gender-affirming surgery in 1972 in Casablanca. Before the surgery, she and Elizabeth had to get a divorce because same-sex marriage was illegal in Britain. Ugh, how heartbreaking. I know. But they – it didn't – to them, they were like, it's just a formality. It didn't change their relationship. So after mm-hmm. her sex-affirming surgery in Morocco, she returned to Wales and returned to her home, returned to her family. And there's this passage in her book, Conundrum, that she wrote in 1974, which is two years after her transition – where she writes about going to the local shop for the first time as Jan. And she said no one that she knew batted an eyelid. And in her small town, she says that very few have done so since. And she says, I know, she says, I put it down to kindness. Just that. Everything good in the world is kindness. And of course, I mean, everyone was not so kind. There was backlash. It was 1974. Um, In a review of her book, a writer wrote, um, kind of just like putting a doubt that gender transition was even a thing and wrote that as Jan Morris plucks at your girl your sleeve for a girlish heart to heart you wonder about Elizabeth her unbroken silence is the truest truest measure of Jan's enduring masculinity and Elizabeth was like fuck you and she yeah. was like moved to respond she was like I am she wrote I am not very silent and I'm certainly not anguished the children and I not only love Jan very dearly but we are very proud of her yeah I know and Jan wrote more than 24 books after Conundrum in 1974, including Destinations, which came out in 1980, and Journeys in 1984, which were both collections of travel write articles. And one reviewer called her travel writing oddly reassuring, showing us that there are more ways of experiencing cultures than most of us supposed. She wrote, Jan wrote into her later years, including a book of essays called In My Mind's Eye, which was published in 2018, which was she was well into her 90s. And a a final book called Allegorizing is going to be published um, because she said it to be published after she died. She said, it's going to be it's going to be published, quote, the minute I kick the bucket. Although she warns that there's, it's just musings. It's not, it doesn't contain any big secrets or revelations. Mm -hmm. Despite all her successes, Jan knew that her transition at a time when it was like rarely talked about was going to be one of the big things that was remembered about her life. She once wrote, I do not doubt that when I go, the event will be commemorated with a small back page headline, 
sex change author dies, which I will say for the record, I didn't see any of those headlines. So although they had divorced in 1972, Jan and Elizabeth had never actually lived apart. They had raised their children together. They had shared the same love and affection that they had from the days that they'd ridden the bus together just to be in each other's companies their entire lives. So on May 14th, 2011, the couple were married again in a civil ceremony, and it was just a small affair, just them and another couple who invited them for tea to their house afterwards, because to them, they had been married the whole time. Elizabeth said, I made my marriage vows 59 years ago and still have them. After Jan had the sex change, we had to divorce. It did not make any difference to me. We still had our family. We just carried on. Sometime after their Mm. second wedding, Elizabeth began to suffer with dementia. And as you can imagine, it was hard for both of them. You know, Jan said it made both of them grumpy and scared. But she wrote in her book of essays, Mind's Eye, she said, the kindness reconciles us still in all our long years together in life as in love. We have not once said goodnight without the sweet kiss of reconciliation. Mm. So their youngest son, Tom, who's a poet, lives across the road from them, from their home in Wales, and he has been the one who has helped his parents. And in an interview Jan gave in March um, of this year, she talked about the difficulty of what she called extreme old age. But she concluded that life has its problems, but it also has its delights. And before Jan died, she and Elizabeth decided that they would be buried together under one headstone. And they had had it made years ago, and it sat under the stairs of their house in Wales. And it says, both in Welsh and English, here are two friends at the end of one life. Oh, I know. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. So that's my love story. I love that. I've actually never heard of two people being buried under one headstone. I know. And that's, like what I love that. Yeah. It's um I just I, I love I love that it's it's it is such a beautiful and simple story. Like, even though I'm sure there are a lot of people that wanted to make it like such a big deal, like, oh my God, they're staying married, even though she's transitioned. But to them, it was just, I love this person and I love this person no matter what. And we have a family and we have a life and we love each other. So we're just going to live our lives and not give a fuck what anybody else cares, you know? Yeah. It's just the most beautiful story about love and support on the deepest and truest level. Yes. Like for all of eternity even. Yeah. I love that. I love it too. And I have to give credit to Ben who he read her uh, Jan Morris's obituary and was like, I bet there's a love story in there. And you know what? He was right. He was was. right. He was right. Good job, Ben. And also I the fact that she has written that many books is just so wildly impressive to me. Yes. Oh, it me too. It just seems like obviously to write one book is insurmountable. Seems insurmountable. Yeah. Um, but I mean, and you know, because you're a writer and and you've written a beautiful book. I've written ah book. Wonderful book. <laughs> I can't wait to get to the masses. Should we do something dumb and something we love? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll start. Um, I guess for some is, I'm not sure why we thought this would be a good idea. Well, I can tell you why we thought it was a good idea. We decided both my dogs had to get surgery. Ruth, the the puppy, had to get spayed. And Frank has been needing this very um, invasive, complicated dental surgery um, for quite some time. So we thought we would schedule it together so that Uh they would – 
be out of commission at the same time and be mm-hmm. at the same level of chillness. Uh-huh. And How'd that uh, work sounds out? like a good idea. But <laughs> I forgot that it's also the holidays yeah. and COVID uh-huh. and we're homeschooling uh-huh. and I'm working. Yeah. And, um, and also I forgot that Ruth is a puppy and uh-huh. that she heals very quickly. <laughs> um, so Ruth like had her surgery. She was out of it for the first day and then now she's fine. And she woke up yesterday in like full on puppy mode. And Frank had his surgery yesterday and he had to have 10 teeth removed. Oh, poor Frank. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, guys. Brush your dog's teeth. <laughs> I thought it was optional. You mean you it's not? Can't just give them those they dental don't just bones. Suggest it. <laughs> they mean it. So, um, I yeah. So Fred, he had to have ten teeth removed, and he's so out of it, and like he needs to rest. But Ruth is like, "Let's party!" <laughs> She's all hopped and up on it's goofballs. <laughs> very hard keeping them separated at the moment, but um, but yeah. So that's dumb. It's dumb. Those poor babies had to have surgery. But I'm what's something I love is that they both took to their surgeries very well. They're healing nicely. Everybody's gonna be okay, um, and I'm grateful for that. Good. So. That's that. How about you? Good. Um, let's see. My something dumb is I just I have not been sleeping the last two nights. And even mm. though I'm on vacation, I should be sleeping fine. But yes. we talked about it earlier. I just am like, I have all this, like, I'm just by, you know, mom guilt of whatever, yeah. whatever, like things I should be doing. But I'm like, I'm doing this to myself. Nobody else is expecting anything of me, but I just right. do it to myself. So I need to let it go. I know. We just do that as women and as mothers. We do that to ourselves where we always feel like even when we do get a break, we feel like now I should be uh, focusing on all the balls that I've been dropping for the last. You know what I mean? It's like you just – it's hard to allow yourself to really disconnect and relax and take time off. It made made me think when you said that like – all the balls you have in the air. Like I, I heard this, this metaphor once and I can't remember who said it. So I apologize, but it was that, um, someone wrote that, you know, Oh, how, how do you, how as a mom, do you keep all the balls in the air at the same time? And the woman was like, uh, you don't, you can't like, you just have to remember that some of the balls are plastic and some of them are glass and you have to know which ones are which and let the plastic ones drop sometimes. Yeah. And know which ones are glass and which ones you have to keep up. And like so sometimes the sometimes your kids are the glass ball and sometimes your job is the plastic one and other times it's the other way. Like so it just is you just knowing like it just is like that relief of like you don't have to keep everything going. Yeah. You don't. And like you're not you're not a one man band. The balls made of cotton are those goddamn elf on the shelves. You stop <laughs> Stop people giving each other these friggin' traditions that are pseudo traditions that just add stress and make the children compare. Like, my kids are like, our elf just sits there. (laughs) You're like, well, you're elf's mom. Why isn't my elf doing snowflakes (laughs) in the (laughs) cornflakes? My parents are pieces of shit. So my something I love, and I think probably why I'm having this, is that I am actually taking a break for myself. I'm. We, you mentioned the book I wrote. I'm going to take 
three days. Like I'm leaving this afternoon and I'm going to go to a cabin for three days and I'm going to try to write a book proposal so that in the next year I can send out this book and try to get it published. At least try. Yeah. At least try. Yeah, yeah. So that's my that's what I'm gonna do. And as is something I love is also that I just, you know, I have a really supportive partner who was like, go, get out of here. And I was like, Are you sure? Because do I need to be here? Do he was like, uh, I'll be fine. I'm fine. <laughs> like, just go, do your thing, uh, so that it gets done. And uh, and then then it's, you know, he's like, just go. So um, so that is a thing I love. Oh, I love that. I love it. Dude, good episode. We <laughs> did right. it. We did another one. Good up. Happy holidays to everybody. If you celebrate Christmas, happy Merry Christmas. Uh, if you, whatever you celebrate, um, I hope you guys are having a wonderful end of December. Go check out our 12 days of giving. And if you have a little bit of extra money, please uh, consider giving to one of those organizations or something that's close to your heart because everybody's in need this year, especially. And uh, this is a, a great time. It'll make you feel good. It'll make somebody else, you know, make a change in somebody else's life. So I say go do it. Do it. it, We love you. And don't forget to get out there and go do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum-dum-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-